This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. There are, I'll just jump right in and just kind of do a FDR fireside chat a bit. You might remember what that was, students of history. Um, There are three things, three chief things that a local church is responsible to do. And these three things that we do, we do them as a part of something that we call the great hope of the kingdom of God. That's a big phrase within the Christian church. We believe that this world and its subdivision into kingdoms of humanity is moving toward and even now becoming the kingdom of our God. And that's not a socio-political takeover by uh, an intruder from the outside. That simply is the growing up of the image of God in humanity until we finally live into the full decency and dignity of who God called us to be. And we believe, I love Paul Tillich, who said we believe here and there, now and then, There is a new life, a new vision. There is that thing called the kingdom springing up among us and even within us. The three things that I think, and I've been taught this, and this is not radically different from anything that you were taught, but it's a reminder today. I I kept hearing as I was preparing, I kept hearing the words of Paul to the churches of Galatia when he said, O Galatians, who has removed you from the simplicity of Christ? In the complexity of life, periodically we have to recalibrate and come back to what Paul called the simplicity of Christ. And that was always the ministry of Jesus, wasn't it? 613 mitzvot, lots of law, Jesus was always summarizing. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Get that, you got the whole deal. Everything else a rabbi prior to Jesus said is just commentary anyway. The three things that we really are called to do Number one, a church, a local church, is called to shape people's ideas about God. Let me say that again. We're called to shape people's ideas through instruction and teaching, to shape their ideas, their convictions, their faith concerning the idea of God, themselves, others life in general, and all of creation. We've called this through the years in various corners of the church, we've called it spiritual formation. Some people call it discipleship. I grew up calling it Christian education. That's the one that most of us probably uh, grew up with. The reality is we're bringing people in touch with what we believe is reality through our teaching. We believe that Jesus was right when he said, You'll know the truth and say it with me. The truth will, that's what truth does. And so we're always trying to move people from the darkness of untruth into the truth. And that begins with their ideas of God, themselves, others, life and creation. So a local church, when done right, is a teaching church. And we are shaping one another. That's not just, you know, the powers that be, they call them, but it's, Mutually, we're learning from one another who we are and who God is. Second thing that we're called to do 
is we are called to create in the local congregation a model of the kingdom of God. When we talk about the kingdom of God, all we're talking about is a world where things are as God would have them. A world where lions lie down with lambs and there are no more need for swords. Swords are beaten into plowshares and there's peace. The local congregation is called not to be a silo, not to be a cultish utopian society, but we are called, while still connected to those without, we are called to do our best in this place. Unsterile as it is, human as it is, we are called to do our best in this local congregation to create a model of the kingdom of God. For people live together in a mutually concerned, loving environment of giving and receiving. What use are we if we take care of the whole world and don't take care of those sitting beside us? What use are we if we love grand missions, schemes, and ideas but don't actualize them with those closest to us. We have called that through the years. It's not a hidden part of the church, but it's not a, a ballyhooed part of the church, but it is a central part of the church. We've called that through the years congregational care, pastoral care. And we show up at one another's hospitals, funerals, intensive cares, weddings, births, we show up for one another. We care for one another. The third thing that we're called to do is we are called to lead one another as a congregation beyond our walls. We are called to lead one another as a congregation outside of ourselves into the world. If we have in any way built some sense of mutual care and concern for one another, we are not to sit here and wait for people to come see it. We are to take that out and to share it with others. Even those Jesus called our enemies who would not reciprocate. Jesus said, for if you only do congregational pastoral Jesus care within, but you don't do it without, you're no better than the religious frauds. So we're called to take this model and we're called to apply it not only to those that we find it very easy to like, those who share our ideas and share our church and sing songs together, but we're called to get outside of ourselves into a world where mutual concern and love are not lived. We're called to get out of here and we are called, Jesus said, to be salt in the midst of things that are spoiling. We're called to be light in the midst of those places that are incredibly dark. And, and through the years, that's had lots of uh, nomenclature as well. It's been called missions. I grew up with it called missions. It's been called social justice in the recent century. It's been called prophetic action. Through these three things, learning about God, living lovingly together, and reaching out to reshape the social landscape of the world and to share the love of Christ outside of our walls. Through those three things, we proclaim the gospel. We proclaim the good news. 
through those things. They become megaphones through which we proclaim in incarnate form the love of God shown in Jesus Christ. And that good news that we're proclaiming uh, to employ the words of Jesus in Luke 17, and I love these words. They are seminal words in his ministry, his effect, his ideology. But that good news, Jesus said, is that the kingdom of God is near. That reign of God where there will be no more tears, no more injustice, no more pain, where betrayal and hatred and suffering will be gone. That kingdom of God is near. The good news is that that kingdom of God, Jesus said, is not out there, and it's not over there, and it's not back there. That kingdom of God, Jesus said, is near, it's accessible, and then he blew their minds by looking at them and saying, it's within you. The seeds of this are in you right now. And that kingdom of God that is in you, that at any moment, if you will allow it, can erupt. And in the space of your little life, in the periphery of your person, you can create in a very dark world an embassy of sorts. In the darkest of country, an embassy where the flag of God flies and peace reigns. And that kingdom of God will spring up in people like you and will eventually prevail. And Julian of Norwich said, and all manner of things shall be well. And until that full prevailing comes, we can be a part of that kingdom now as we pray, thy kingdom come. Benji, everywhere you go and sing those songs, with your life and song, you pray, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth, not just macro earth, but on earth. The terra firma, the soil of this dust-built life, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. All three of those things, teaching and learning, caring for one another, reaching out beyond and being committed that in our small way, we can show up. We can show up for those who can't show up for themselves. As a matter of fact, if you find yourself showing up for people who can barely show up for themselves, you will find yourself as close to Jesus as you can possibly get because that's where he always was. Whether it's a battered woman's shelter, a homeless orphanage in Haiti, a march on the streets of Nashville yesterday, Pat leading the women down to simply play with children on a Sunday afternoon while mothers who have no home and no hope can just get a break and possibly breathe. <laughs> Those three things, learning, loving, and then reaching out and sharing the kingdom of God. I want to tell you what those do. They cultivate your full humanity. They cultivate you until you begin to become the people that God has called you to become. They cultivate in you that which Paul saw when he said that God literally has planned that all of you would be the younger brothers and sisters of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus would be so proud of the genetic image that was so perfectly represented in him, seeing it represented in you, when you show up 
when you learn, when your mind is transformed, when you love, you begin to be that person that the writer of Hebrews said Jesus will show up before the Father oh, and he will say, these are my children whom you've given me and I am not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. How about that? How about that? To have Jesus Christ, Josh, look at me and say, I loved him. I gave grace to him. But I'm not ashamed to say, that's my brother. His life ended up looking like mine. Never that good, but ever on its way. These three chief things that we are called to do, they're like different food groups. And this is so important for a church. And my mentor, L.H. Hardwick, used to tell me this all the time. His phrase was, Stan, you can't take enough vitamin C to overcome your need for vitamin A. And the point was that these three things that I just shared, some churches make two A's and a B, some churches make an A plus, a B minus, and an F. If we're not careful, we can fixate on the one of those things that is our candy stick that maybe we do well and forget the other two. But true healthy churches and true healthy Christian people recognize that these three things are like food groups. A young lady reached out to me as her pastor last night and said, I am so thankful for what our church is doing and I in no way want to say that what we're doing is anything less than God's will. I am thankful in every way for everything we do. But she said, I am hurting and I have no strength to march. I have no strength to go into prisons. I have no strength left in me. Please don't forget me. And I felt no defensiveness. I thought that is the absolute healthiest thing to say. That we cannot do one thing so well that we forget that we must do all of these things well. And there aren't many. But these three things are like bodily systems. The circulatory system cannot be strong enough to overcome the breakdown of the endocrine system. They have to be mutualized together healthily. And this cultivation of a life, of a local congregation, this cultivation we have variously called through the years salvation, redemption, sanctification, holiness, new birth, born again, abundant life, lots of terms, even straight from the Bible, lots of terms. Christianity teaches that every one of you, Christianity teaches that every human being is made in the image of God and as such is a child of God. Christianity affirms what Paul said that day in Athens when he said to the pagan polytheistic people he was talking to, we are all the offspring of God and as that offspring we should learn correct things about God and treat one another accordingly. Jesus came not to make you a child of God, but Jesus came to call and lead every child of God into the fullness of their created capacity and identity. Employing the story of the prodigal son, our sages have aptly referred to that spiritual process as homecoming. And these three things that we do 
They are a part of our homecoming. A friend of mine pastors a church full of a ragtag, differentiated people from all walks of life. Recently, at their Eucharist, the music was playing, the Eucharist was being served, and in that congregation full of all sorts of people, a mentally incapacitated man that they dearly love, that was all, it's always loud in the service and is a part of the dynamic and construct of their liturgy. Oh, that one day the church, beneath our robes and liturgies, could recognize the voice of a mentally ill man ringing out inappropriately as a part of our song. In the midst of their Eucharist, Kim, he broke line and he grabbed the cup that was at the front and he drank the thing all the way to the dregs. <laughs> and my friend looked at him as he wiped his mouth and the church stood and she said, welcome to the Lord's Supper. Moments like that cultivate, cultivate this homecoming. These three things that we do as a church have been the call and the effort of Grace Point Church for the past 12 years to help people experience the abundant life that God came, we are always pushing you to think better thoughts about God and yourself. We are always imploring you, please get in a meal group. Please take time to know the people sitting beside you. Please notice if a single parent's children's shoes are worn thin. Please, please think about the extra furniture stored in your attic. Please conceive that the people singing the songs beside you have cancers and hurts and pains, that they are longing for you to look with intention into their eyes and say, how are you, and mean it beyond a colloquial, how do you do? Please, please get involved. If it's not the women at the homeless shelter, if it's not Timothy's gift, if it's not marching on behalf of the LGBT community, if it's not going to the battered women's shelter, please get outside of yourself. Find something, Steve, beyond the walls of your life. Find something that you can say with the Israelites when they took the lamb, the Passover lamb, and when they prepared it, they looked at that lamb and they declared, the lamb is too big for our house. We can't eat it all. Please look at the Lamb of God in your life and declare with them, this is too big. It's too much for just my family. Who can we box this up and share it with today? In these three chief responsibilities, there's something very important for us to note as we calibrate, as we literally envision and are experiencing a rebirth as a congregation. And that is a part of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that that paschal cycle, that cycle of 
life and death and burial and resurrection does not happen once in your life, but it happens again and again and again. Through rhythms of spring, summer, winter, and fall, we must ever be submitted to that process, and now we are in a season of rebirth. And in this season, it's very important for you to know that these are our three responsibilities that we must do well. And in those three responsibilities, you also are going to hear two voices. Two voices that speak side by side through one another. These two voices speak to us as we learn, we love, and we act. This is incredibly important information right now. The two voices that we must hear and must yield to if we are going to be an effective church are the pastoral voice and the prophetic voice. There is an old adage in our faith concerning these two voices, and the adage goes something like this. The pastoral voice, Paul, is the voice that comforts the afflicted. And the prophetic voice is the voice that afflicts the comfortable. I want to say it again. In our learning, in our loving, and in our reaching, there are two voices that God speaks through in our life. The voice of the pastor, which comforts the afflicted. And we have all been afflicted, haven't we? And we have all needed comfort. But there is also a voice of God that comes through the office of the church, through one another, and that's the voice of the prophet. And the voice of the prophet is that voice that afflicts those who are unduly comfortable. And I gotta tell you, I am built for the pastoral voice. I'm not only built to speak the pastoral voice, I'm built to hear the pastoral voice. The prophetic voice is a painful one. The prophetic voice is that voice that tells you what you do not want to hear and drives you to a place of spiritual discomfort that is necessary. It is a tall order for a local congregation to yield completely and effectively to the prophetic voice. When a local congregation learns to yield to the prophetic voice, there is a possibility that that local congregation can become a prophetic congregation. And not all congregations are prophetic in nature. And not all congregations perhaps need to be prophetic in nature. But there is modeled in the life of Jesus, both the pastoral and the prophetic, that dual voice, that dual role is a perfect description of who Jesus was. I mean, do I have to take the time? Most of you know the stories. Wasn't Jesus always about the business of comforting the weak, giving strength to the broken, pulling in the outcast, standing beside the marginalized? He was ever about the business of bringing the child into his lap, stepping in front of the woman drugged from the adulterous bed, standing up for the leper, reaching out to the Samaritan, giving bread to the Gentile. 
But this Jesus, we also know, who was often comforting the afflicted, he also, don't you know, don't you remember, he also was very much about the business of afflicting the comfortable, wasn't he? The one who said, come unto me, those of you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest for your soul. My burden is light. My yoke, it's an easy one. That is the voice of the pastor. That's the shepherd calling the wounded one, saying, it's been hard, I know, but you will find rest here. Don't forget that he said that on the heels of seriously upbraiding the religious. He looked at the religious and he said, you have built a system of religion that heaps burdens on people that they have no capacity to bear. He said, for crying out loud, you haven't even been able to bear them. You've had to build lives of smoke and mirrors. You've had to live lives of delusion, fantasy, and magic to project an image that you have no capacity to live. Even you can't live these things, and yet you put them on people. And then you who have broken fully into hypocrisy, when you watch these poor people stagger, weary under the load of averse religion, useless rules, meaningless ideas. Jesus said worse than breaking them with religion, as if life hadn't broken them enough. And they stagger into a synagogue and a church, broken and haggard, and you exacerbate. You pour acid in their wounds. And Jesus said, if that were not enough, when they collapse beneath the pressure, you don't even lift a finger to help them. And he looked at them and he said, he looked at people like me, who lived vocationally their life for this. And he said, you snake. You hypocrite. Woe. Woe is you. The ax is laid to the root of the tree. And if that is the Christianity that is dying, then that Christianity needs to die. It will be good for the kingdom of God. And he turned in that same setting and said, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. Prophetic and pastoral. His voice was both tender and a razor's edge. He was both pastor, prophet, comforter, and challenger. And all I want to say to you is the life that he lived and the community he created is the model for us as individuals and for this church called Grace Point and frankly the whole world. Now let me come down the home stretch here. Today's message is admittedly not complex. As a matter of fact, it is intentionally exactly the opposite. Today is a simple clarification of the profound simplicity of what it means to be a church. Today is a simple clarification of the profound simplicity of Christ, our teacher, our savior, our redeemer, our healer, our example, and the one we call Lord. Grace Point Church must ever be about the business 
of modeling the life that was lived in the person of Jesus Christ. This is a community of God that has been drawn, reconciled, inspired, and taught by Jesus. And as such, I want to remind you, we are committed here. These elders, this staff, our board, we are committed to doing our dead level best to lead a congregation that number one teaches the truth about God and life. We are determined to teach people the truth as we understand it about God, doing our best because we believe the most important thing in your life is how God sees you. And I've got good news for you, it's very favorable. I told the story, for those of you that haven't heard it, I had an old mentor, friend, literarily mostly, named Jim McGuigan. Jim was a fascinating soul, wrote some books that really moved my life 20 years ago. Jim was a prolific thinker, writer, and preacher from Ireland. He came here, gave himself to the industry of church, was on his way to great things, and through a series of events, found himself nobly, wonderfully, back in Ireland, humbly pastoring a little house church in the midst of a very averse place. Left all of this and went there. I could tell you a fuller story about Jim, but enough said. Jim used to say, he comes from an old church of Christ, Campbellite, non-instrumental. We used to call them the non-fiddle playing Campbellites. A lot of you Church of Christers in here. Jim comes from a Church of Christ background and the Church of Christ background that he came from was quite harsh. And, and uh, Jim, Jim was a part of the healing and of that, but Jim said some of that would still nag at him at times and he said in his Irish brogue, I can't do it well, but he said, one day I'm gonna stand before me, Lord, and I'm going to nervously fiddle with the brim of my hat and I'm going to stub my toe of inadequacy and I'm going to whisper, I did my best, Lord. And he said, as I went waiting for judgment, I believe that he's going to take a tender hand and lift my chin and say, no, Jim, you didn't. But you did good and I'm glad you're home. And I want you to know that's the way Steve Lindstrom, God, looks at you. You're his child. And whatever the elder brother or life has put on you, whatever you've put on yourself, those aromas that come from the hog pens in the far countries that cause you to wince beneath the touch of the Father and even cause you to sing to him the song, I am not worthy, just make me a slave. I want you to know today, that in the midst of that, there is a voice that says, get a ring, kill a calf, get a robe. <laughs> Bobby, I'll just wear you out, won't it? Come home. Me too, buddy, me too. Most important thing, the reason we take teaching around here very seriously is because we believe that what's happening in the process of the kingdom of God coming we believe that we haven't always seen God clearly and even now we see through a glass darkly and this is not the end of our progress.
We believe that the tradition of Christianity is an ever and unfolding process of growing glory by glory into the fullness of who God is until one day we stand with God and we are known or we know even as we're known. We believe that Jesus meant it when he said, I have many things to tell you, even about myself, but, when, but you're not capable of hearing them, but when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll teach you all things about me. I stood in a crowd of people yesterday and I thought to myself how much I have learned from these people about Jesus in the last year. We look out at incarcerated murderers and rapists and we learn less about the prison system and more about Jesus as the Holy Spirit drives down, down, down to the substrate of our soul. For 2,000 years, he is teaching us more and more. And so we are a group of people that believe the most important thing in this world is what God thinks about you, but the second most important thing in your life is what you think about God, because what people think about God affects everything. Do I need to take time to talk about the religious strife in this world and the grief that has come, the pain that has come from how people see God? And the third most important thing in your life is how you see yourself. And if we can get those ideas straight, we have a foundation to build an abundant life on. And so this church is committed to teaching the right things about God. And in the middle of the Bible Belt, we believe that there is this continual cycle of construction, deconstruction, and reconstruction as we are growing into our knowledge of God. This church for 12 years has not done everything well. We've made some C minuses and B pluses, but one thing that we have made an A plus in is we have been a haven for deconstructed people who don't know what they believe anymore. We have brought them in and we've said, feel no shame. Jesus is just fine with people like you. We, yes, we've done that well. We have, we have found so many anecdotes from the pages of Scripture that so powerfully speak to this. I recognized years ago and have shared it often, and you will hear it in the future. Three times there was a woman, the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus. Her name was Mary. She's only mentioned three times in Scripture. The first time she's mentioned in Scripture, her sister is in the kitchen cooking, and her sister Martha's mad at her for not doing the cooking, right? You remember where Mary was? At the feet of Jesus. Remember what she was doing? She was learning from him. The third time we see Mary, guess where she is? At the feet of Jesus. You know what she's doing this time? She's worshiping him and pouring oil on his feet because he's going to die in a few short hours. The first time she was at the feet of Jesus learning and she was castigated. The third time and last time she's in scripture, she's at the feet of Jesus worshiping and Judas castigates her, says this is ridiculous. In both cases, Jesus defends her. So we believe in worship and we believe in Christian education. But to tell you what the church has not always done well with, 
Do you remember the second time between the first and third when she was at the feet of Jesus? She had sent a servant to go get Jesus because she had learned from Jesus that if you have a problem, he'll fix it. At least she thought she had learned that. And her brother was dying, and she sent a servant to Jesus. And when the servant went to Jesus, the servant said, Mary, the one that you love, wants you to come and heal her brother. And the Bible says that Jesus sat down. And the servant had to go back, and Mary said, where is he? And the servant said, he didn't come. And Mary held the hand of her brother for another few days till he died. And everything she thought she had learned at the feet of Jesus now was lost in the cavernous, gaping wound of disappointment with God. And the Bible says that Jesus, after Lazarus died, went, I suppose, for the funeral. And when he got there, the servant came in and said, Jesus is here, but Lazarus had been dead for a few days. And Martha, the older sister, runs out to meet him, and the Bible says that Mary sat down and didn't leave the house. And after talking to Martha a little while, Jesus, ever the gentleman, ever the spiritual guide, Jesus outside the house sends Martha in. Martha comes in. Beside Mary she goes. And the words are these. Sis, the master really wants to talk to you. You think he couldn't have busted through the door and said, what are you doing, pouting? You know who I am? That's the Job story, right? I'm bigger than you. Shut up. But from Hebrew Scripture to New Testament Scripture, there is an unfolding of who God is. And less and less of the projection of our vitriol and hatred is cast upon God as Jesus begins to refine through the, you've heard it said, to I say unto you. And Mary, the Bible said, did something amazing. When Jesus comes, or when Martha comes in and asks her, Mary begrudgingly goes out, and when she gets to Jesus, guess where she went? And the Bible says she fell at his feet and began to upbraid him. Where were you? Why didn't you do what you said you'd do? Why didn't you be who you said you were? And there was no Job story. There was no who do you think you are. But he picked her up and without a word, only one word, said to her, where is he? And no mix of theology, just the living presence of God. He walks with her to the tomb, no words spoken, no scripture debated, no rehash of what she had learned when he taught her. They go to the tomb, and without words, the Bible says the most profound thing that scripture ever said about Jesus. The Bible said he wept. And he mingled his tears with hers, her, the one who didn't believe. And in those tears was such a healing that a few days later, she falls at his feet and worships him. 
And here at this church, we have believed that the church has done a really good job on Christian education. We make plenty of space at the feet of Jesus for learning. We've done a great job. We have a whole industry called praise and worship music. We've done a great job with liturgy and uh, the central piece. We get more people out for a worship service than we do anything else. We've done a big job with all, we, we've done, I think we've done a splendid job, and I'm not picking on it. Worship is good. But we have plenty of space at the feet of Jesus for learning and worshiping, but we haven't always done a good job with space at the feet of Jesus for questioning and struggling. We not only believe that the loss of faith is not unhealthy, we, may believe, we believe that it may be the healthiest part of your spiritual journey with God. So we are a teaching church. And we believe that we should create a community of people who have not only learned together, but they are ready to live out what they've learned, gratefully sharing their belovedness in a local church family. In other words, if we learn all of this great stuff about God and ourselves theoretically, and we don't take care of one another through the giving of time, gifts, service, and presence. This morning, I reached back to that young lady the second time and said, I hear you. I'm praying for you. Let's talk. She responded and said, it means so much to know that the church cares. Thank you. You not only responded once, you responded twice. And when I hung up from that text, Diana Butler Bass one of my heroes that is so far beyond the scope of my life, one of the greatest theologians. Out of nowhere, I've never met the woman. She Facebooked me and said, I am proud of you and I am worried about you. What can I do for you? And I just wept. Who am I? That she would do that. To live in a community of people, Pam, who care like that. Oh my, is there a greater gift in this world? If we don't do that for one another? That's why when I showed up at the march yesterday, there's a hundred Grace Point people standing around and you were all talking to people you knew. And I'm like, hey, have you heard of inclusion? <laughs> Talk to somebody you don't know. My Lord, be nice to one another. Kindness goes a long way. We can't save the whole world and not be good to one another. And finally, we do want to keep taking those buses. We do, Steve, want to keep handing out those backpacks. Bobby, we do want to keep getting guys into apartments and putting furniture in them. We do want to bring the kingdom of God to bear upon this earth because we believe the local church, when done right, can be a prophetic voice that literally helps reshape the social landscape of this world. And finally, I'll say this, and then I want my friend Justin to come. We are, through many dangers, toils, and snares, positioned as a church 
on the threshold of not only doing these three things, but we are positioned through many dangers, toils, and snares of doing these things well, better than we've ever done them, with grace and dignity. It is no secret that the past six months have been challenging, to say the least. It is also no secret that they have been exciting and life-giving to not only us, but to so many beyond our walls. In the midst of simultaneous death and life, in the midst of simultaneous challenge and excitement, in the midst of simultaneous resistance and opportunity, fear and faith, despair and hope, in this season of emotional paradox, I often say it's like that young girl that I watched a few years ago walk down the aisle to her wedding knowing that her father had died that week and she was a daddy's girl. And I watched her walk down that middle aisle on the arm of her uncle and I thought, oh, what a conflict of emotions. This Gail was her single happiest hour and her single saddest hour compressed into one space. And there we have been the past six months. fixed somewhere between life and resurrection. And I will tell you, as the senior pastor, the founding pastor of this church, in my weakest moments, I lie on the floor and I pray that this church will survive. In my struggling moments, I pray that this church will reach and that reach will exceed the frail grasp of its founding pastor. And I pray that the clay feet of our leaders will be sufficient to lead this church over the shards of rocky resistance that we face. Those are my weakest moments. In my strongest moments, I am embarrassed, regretful, and almost ashamed of my weakest moments. And I don't pray for survival, but I give thanks not only that we will survive, that we will thrive, and I look around and I say, we are thriving. And I give thanks that God is with us. I give thanks that we are committed to God's vision through Jesus of a prevailing church. And I admit to you that we are in a season of rebirth, a season where we must back up, revisit, recalibrate. This is a season of all hands on deck, it is a season of financial crisis and challenge. It is a season when we look amongst faithful staff who have pressed this church through to this point and ask which one. These are hard, hard times, and they are wonderfully beautiful times. But I am more convinced than ever, because this is a good moment, that we are thriving, that God's grace is with us, and that God is doing something bigger than any individual in this room, and it is so far beyond the composite of all of our dreams. This is the dream of God. Let us be good to one another. Let us learn, love, and reach well. I have thankfully been relieved of my duties in a lot of areas as founding pastors around here and strong elders and board members and pastors are growing up 
Justin Pitt is a gift. Richard, you're right, founding board member. What a gift. Every board meeting you say, where did you come from? How did we get you? What a gift, don't you? Every board meeting. I'll tell you how we got him. He came in here, a broken Southern Baptist young man who said, I don't believe anymore. And I heard this church can help put faith back together. And he came in here with struggles and issues and found a haven here. And little by little, this one that you know every week is the offering taker and chairman of the board. That's not who he was. He was a young man that we met with and journeyed with until little by little, Jesus began to come into focus. That's who we are. That's who he is. That's what we're doing. And I am thankful to be able to have these people standing beside me. And I'm asking you to stand up like you've never stood up before. And those who are not giving reasonably through volunteer and finance, if you're not giving reasonably, start giving reasonably. If you've been giving reasonably, give generously. If you've been giving generously, take the next step and give sacrificially. This is beautiful and it deserves to thrive. We've uh, got some new people here today and some people that I that are relatively new. As Pastor Stan said, my name's Justin Pitt. I'm on the board of directors of the church. That's our board of lay people. I'm not on the staff. I'm a lawyer. I'm not a theologian. I'm not a pastor of any kind. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about the state of the church and, and where we are financially and, and that kind of thing. But And I wrote a lot of notes um, and like most of my notes, I'm not going to read them. And um, because one of the things that I that really shined through for me as I listened to Stan talk was this: um, as we try to be God's prophetic vision for the world, I believe in my heart that we find ourselves realizing that God also had a prophetic vision for us. And we got comfortable. If the prophets afflict the comfortable and we perceived ourselves as prophets, sometimes prophets can perceive themselves as martyrs and you get in that sense. And I believe that part of the reason we find ourselves where we are now is we got comfortable. And that's good for us. Yesterday, I went to the walk and I met with people and I just, people who were moved by the fact that we were there, people who may be here today, and that was meaningful to me. I left that and I went and picked up a homeless family that was living in a hotel that I hope none of us ever have to stay in with two beautiful little children watching a tiny little television. And I took them grocery shopping and I saw the impact of that. And I drove away from that with some friends and I had a, that little sense of being proud of myself for having done that all day long. And I got home and I reflected on the day and I realized one of the friends from this church that was in the van with me had been hurting and she had sent me the signal she had and I completely missed it. And shame on me. I think God's talking to us through this time and, I, and we need to hear it. And we need to hear it as a group of people because it's good for us. 
The promise that I can make you, as Stan said, is I came here and didn't believe anything, and I had cussed God, and I had cursed the church, and I was never coming back, and I don't know what I'd do without this place now. So what does that mean? We have, as a board, um, essentially eliminated the budgets for our major ministries. We've cut them to zero. Um, we have existed for a while in this church with the luxury of enough money to pay for things that a lot of churches do through volunteerism, that the first church did through volunteerism. We are in the process of staff reduction because we have to be. That's hard. But this is an opportunity. And the opportunity is that we can get to the business of being a church. And that's good for all of us. It's good for all of us to show up and clean this sanctuary. It's good for all of us to show up and do things for one another. Because when you get out of yourself, you will find yourself. You will never find yourself just sitting here. All of us have time and all of us have money. And you don't give your time and your money because you owe it to someone else. You owe it to yourself. You will grow, I promise. And we will grow. And there may be one or two of you or a handful in here who, who do not have time or money. And if you don't, welcome home. We will take care of you. Because that's our job. Right now, fiscally, we are in a very tough position. If we spend at our current rate, even with our reductions, we are looking at a zero balance in the late fall, early winter. Are we going to get there? This is the part where you guys all yell no. Are we going to let that happen? That's a terrible woman. Are we going to let that happen? Okay. No, we're not. No, we're not. Because we're going to come together and we're going to band together and we're going to listen humbly to the prophetic call of God as we send the prophetic call out as we take care of one another as a church, I think God is telling us something. And he's telling us something as we project our vision outward, which is his call to us. We don't forget to turn to that person next to us and wrap our arms around him or her and say, I love you and I will take care of you and you will take care of me. And if you're here for the first time or the second time or the third time, welcome home. You belong here. Don't wait. You belong here, I promise you. Trust me, I've been where you sit, and this is an amazing place, and we will take care of you, and we will call you to take care of other people. And that's gonna start with little things like, there's not gonna be any coffee next week. There aren't gonna be any donuts next week. Martyrs. Yeah. <laughs> actually, actually, I'll put it this way. There won't be any coffee at the bench, and there won't be any donuts provided but I bet we have some people who could bring it. We are not going to provide some of the things that we provided, uh, services that we provided in the future, but I bet we can. It's gonna be good for all of us and we can do this and it's gonna be beautiful, but we've got to. Take an offering. Take an offering. Um, to that end, if our ushers will um, prepare for our offering. Um, 
even with these, um, even with the things that we've done, we really don't want staff reductions. We really have a lot of great ministries that we're involved in and want to continue to, to thrive and grow because our job is to take care of each other and take care of our community. So we thank you very much for your generosity. Um, and I ask you to be more generous. And I guess one more thing I want to add, and this was in my notes. I'm 40. Um, my generation in this church and historically in churches has not played its role. If you go around this church and look at the hard work that gets done, it's 50 and up. And that's got to stop. I don't want you 50 and up to stop. You guys got to keep doing that work. But my, but, but, but my generation has got to step up. And we got to quit talking about what it means to do Christianity and do love, and we got to go do it. And we got to do it with our money, and we got to do it with our time. So I call specifically today on my generation, let's do this. Let's participate. Let's take care of the people who've taken care of us. And let's pray as a family. Father, thank you. Thank you for your overwhelming love and the space that you create for us to doubt and the space that you create for us to question and the space for you, that you create for us to be weak and frail. Thank you for the journey that you provide us all and the will that you provide us all. Thank you for letting us get lost so that you can find us, so that we can find ourselves and so that we can find each other. God, help to teach us the unbelievable truth that we'll only find ourselves if we'll lose ourselves. God, help us to love one another. Help us to love ourselves and help us to give of ourselves as abundantly and generously as we can. Amen.